All right, uh, so it's so good to see you guys. If you do have your Bibles, like I said, head over to Esther chapter 4. It's fun. Uh, my mom and, uh, and dad came in last night, and, uh, and they came in, we hung out. I'm learning, you know, some of you guys who have older kids, you'll figure this out. I'm learning that now my parents don't come in to see me as much as they come in to see the grandkids. Um, that's right, amen, that's right, that's what I'm learning. And uh, I, my mom has a little joke. What my mom always says is, grandchildren are God's reward for not killing your children. And, uh, and so that's right. And so uh, it's just good to have them in. And we want to do this. Now, listen, today we, are, uh, we planned this sermon to fall on this week for a reason. You'll see why. Uh, if you've been around for the last few weeks, we're t- today is the last week of a series that we've just been called Finding God's Will. And what, here's what we know. We know that we never have to ask a question about anything that is in the scriptures. Everything that is in this book, God has already spoken to us, and we know that it's his will. And so uh, where I've been coming from as a pastor is I know that there are four things that happen in this order that are God's will for your life. And each week we've done one of these. So I just want you to know, if you're new with us, the first thing God wants for you is he wants you to know him. He doesn't want you to know about him. He wants you to know him personally through Jesus. And then two, then he, he wants you to find freedom. Uh, he he gave, it came to give eternal life now and later. And so he wants you to find freedom like from some of your issues and sins. And then the next thing is he wants you to discover your calling. He's uniquely gifted you and uniquely put his spirit in your life to do something only you can do. And that's not hyperbole. Uh, that, that's 2 that's, uh, Corinthians. And then the last week, what we're doing today is this concept of the last thing that God wants you to do is he wants you to take who you, who you are, who he's created you to be, and go forward and make a difference in this world. He does not want you to waste your life. He wants you to go forward and make a difference for the fame of his name. And uh, this week, we intentionally pick, I love this so much, I love this book. We picked the book of Esther to show a microcosm of the theology of what the Bible kind of shows us this looks like. And we're specifically going to be in Esther chapter 4. Now, here's why I'm doing this. Uh, here's what I know about you. Uh, you you're not going to tell people this is the kind of thing that you only tell yourself. It's a little too embarrassing to tell other people. What I know about every person in this room is you've got a, an enormous gap in your life. Anytime it comes to thinking about something like this, you know you've got an enormous gap. And here's the gap. Listen, here's the gap. There's a gap between your weaknesses and your dreams. Uh, there's a gap between who you think you would have to be to accomplish the calling God has put on your life and who you actually are. And you acutely feel that gap constantly if you are anything like me at all you feel this enormous gap between my weaknesses and my dreams uh preparing for this sermon i thought back over uh, the last 15 years of ministry and there were like specific people that i thought of uh there's one guy named jamar uh that was uh had jamar in my student ministry uh jamar did not grow up with a dad uh, he grew up fatherless, and so he always had this dream to be able to invest in the next generation of men to raise them with a leadership and perspective that he did not get to have in his home. Uh, Jamar's problem was he had a secret addiction that he developed when he was very young, and so here was his deal. He would have some seasons uh, where he was doing just fine, and he felt like, man, maybe I'll be able to fulfill this calling, um, but then he'd mess up again. And he'd have another stretch, he'd mess up again, have another stretch, he'd mess up again, fall off the wagon. And how Jamar felt was, man, how can I help other people when I need so much help myself? You see, there was a gap between his weaknesses and his dreams. Uh, there's another girl named Heather. Uh, Heather, now this one, this one may hit a little close to home. 
Uh, Heather is an amazing mom. I mean, amazing mom. Uh, she's one of these moms who, uh, she's got her kids are thriving. They're in a bunch of after-school activities. Uh, none of the kids are addicted to meth. That's always a win. Uh, she, you know, she's cooking uh, meals for her kids, you know, four or five nights a week. Just an awesome mom. But she's one of these moms who every night when the kids go to bed, it's never enough. Uh, all she sees is the mess she didn't get around to cleaning. All she remembers is the time she did lose her temper with the kids while they were doing her homework. Uh, all she remembers is the quality time she didn't get to spend with the kid who really needed it. And so she just always verbalizes, man, how can I celebrate any of my successes in the midst of all of these misses and all these, m- these messes, okay? What that is, that's that gap, the gap between my weaknesses and my dreams. Let me get really personal here for a second. This is a little emotional for me. I got permission to share this story. Uh, when I started getting serious about my faith, I was uh, in high school, and my poor little brother, I've got a brother that's three years younger than me and three times cooler than me, and that's how it's always been. Uh, but when I started getting serious about my faith, my brother Lee, he was the one who like bore the brunt of my new religious zeal. And so growing up in high school, uh, you know, it was, early, it was like mid-early 90s, you know, we'd hop in a car to drive him to school, and Lee like wanted to listen to Nirvana, you know, and I was in this like super religious, I was like, no way, man, not in this car, Christian rock, you know, that kind of thing. Uh, I, in high school, I was always the guy, Lee was what I wanted to be in high school. That's, that was my existence. So like Lee was extremely popular with the ladies. And uh, so like sometimes I'd see Lee around school, like checking some girl out and I'd be like, bro, busted, busted lusting. I saw you, you know, you know, bounce your eyes, man, or whatever it was. Uh, every now and then, uh, I'd walk in uh, into our living room, and Lee would be watching. Yes, <laughs> maybe I hope you don't remember the show. Lee would be watching Beavis and Butthead, right? And I'd walk in, and I'd be like, "Bro, not in this house." You know, TV preacher, turn it to TBN, whatever it was. And uh, now that sounds a little funny. It's not funny when you're the younger brother. And uh, so last year, my brother was in rehab for about six months. Uh, doing some recovery for some pretty serious issues. And we had this one family counseling session where I'm there with Jana, and my parents are there, and Lee and his wife are there. And uh, and his counselor kind of led Lee to get really honest with our family, and Lee broke down, and he said, uh, he broke down weeping, which is very uncharacteristic. And he said, man, my entire life, I just grew up feeling like, Josh, you were the good kid, and I was the bad kid, and I would never be able to measure up. And do you hear that language that he used? He used measure up. Do you know what he's verbalizing? He was verbalizing, man, I've always felt like there was this gap. They're like, man, I'm not the person I need to be for God to love me and for me to be able to be used by God. And so there's this gap between my weaknesses and my dreams, who I am and who I need to be for God to use me. And what I want to do uh, in this passage real quick is I want to speak right into that gap, okay? So we got your Bibles. Head over to Esther chapter 4 and pick up with me in verse 10. Now, real quick, I need to give you a little context. We say here, context is king. You're never going to understand a passage to understand a context. So track with me. What you're getting ready to read, it is the turning point of the book of Esther. Uh, at this point, Esther, you're going to read her, make a decision that catapults her into her destiny, where she ends up making an enormous difference in redemptive history for the sake of the people of God. Uh, but you, what, that's not going to make any sense to you until you understand The book you're getting ready to read is when Israel has been taken captive in the empire of Persia. And so all of the Jewish people are Jewish slaves being enslaved by King Xerxes. Now here's what happens in the book of Esther. There's one advisor to the king, a man named Haman. Haman freaks out because he thinks that the Jews 
are keeping him from becoming what he wants to be in the kingdom. And so he twists the king's arm and gets the king to issue a decree to eradicate all of the Jews in the entire uh, nation. Now, Esther has, an, this is very important, bookmark this in your head. Esther has an uncle named Mordecai. Esther is an orphan being raised by her uncle, Mordecai. And it just so happens that at the beginning of Esther, the king, essentially, long story short, he fires the queen. And he goes on a search to find a new queen. Esther, because of her great beauty, is taken into the king's harem. Some questionable choices there, but we'll just go right at it. And then eventually, she is chosen to become the queen of Persia. Now, what you're getting ready to read in these passages is when Esther makes a decision that, like I said, it catapults her into what you're going to see. I'm not using this word lightly, her destiny. And uh, this is the turning point of the book of Esther. So pick up with me in verse 10. Let's read the text together and then get at it. Here we go. Then Esther spoke to Hathak and commanded him to go to Mordecai and say, All the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that if any man or woman goes to the king inside the inner court without being called, there is but one law. Everybody say one law. One law. All right? There is but one law. Bookmark that in your head. To be put to death. Except the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter so that he may live. But as for me, I have not been called to come into the king these 30 days. And they told Mordecai what Esther had said. Then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther. Do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, I love this so much. Relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, Go gather all the Jews to be found in Susa and hold a fast on my behalf. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my young women will also fast as you do. Then I will go to the king, though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. And Mordecai then went away and did everything as Esther had ordered him. Now, here's what you got to understand about Esther. I need you to see this. The first thing I want you to see, I want you to see the type of person that God chooses. Okay, I, I need you to see this. This is a microcosm of a pattern that God carries out through the entire uh, narrative of the entire Bible. A couple things you may not know about Esther. So let me, let me kind of point some things out to you. I already pointed out Esther is an orphan. I already pointed that out. But I want to show you some things about who she was in that empire. So track with me. Here's what this is. This is the social hierarchy of the Persian Empire. It was what was called in your high school history class a caste system, C-A-S-T-E. And here's how that rigidly defined caste system went. Now, here's why this is important. If you were at a lower rung on the caste system, you were not allowed to influence up. That's not how this society worked. So here was how that system worked. Now, you try to figure out where did Esther fit, all right? So at the top, you had the king. He could do whatever he wanted. Big man upstairs. There you go. Now, right under the king, you had advisors. These were usually family members who oversaw, like, provinces of Persia. These big, big deals, okay? Now, under them, a little less important, were the priests. Here's why they were really important. Whenever Persia conquered a new people, uh, Xerxes would use the priests to control people through their religions. It was very manipulative. So the priests were very important to the king. So not as important as advisors, but still important. Now, under the priests, 
you had aristocrats. These were just culturally elite people. They, they controlled the economy of Persia. So kind of important. Now, underneath them, a little less important, you had the military. Military was kind of important in an empire because that's the only way you can actually uh, maintain order in an empire that large. So a little less important was the military. Now, under the military, you had traders. Traders were people who they did importing and exporting from one province to the next, and they made the economy run, okay? So they're less important than the military. Now, less important than the traders, we're getting to the very bottom here. These were craftsmen. In the Persian Empire, these were blue-collar dudes. That's who these were. These were dudes who swung a hammer. Their great-great-granddaddy learned, you know, how to forge, uh, you know, forge iron, and then he passed that skill down to their great-great granddaddy and great granddaddy and granddaddy and you know you can go on and on so these these were uh these were craftsmen now at the very bottom you had farmers and basically almost everybody you would ever know was a farmer and they were the least important people in the entire kingdom uh because the entire kingdom was largely an agrarian society so it's kind of like okay you're a farmer everybody's a farmer you know not, not a big a deal they were at the very bottom of the social hierarchy except there was one class of people who was even less important than a peasant farmer. Here's who that was. Underneath the farmers were slaves. Now the slaves, any time that King Xerxes conquered another empire, another people, they would enslave those people to sometimes work on the farm, sometimes run uh, the economy, that, that sort of thing. And they had no social standing whatsoever. Uh, they were considered property. They were totally unimportant. But here's a catch. In the Persian Empire, a slave was the lowest person in the entire empire. But even among the slaves, there was a social hierarchy among the slaves. So even among the least important people, there was a hierarchy. And in the oppressive empire of Persia, here's how that hierarchy went. There was men at the top and women at the bottom. It's a very oppressive gender hierarchy. So now I want you to think about this. You tell me where in the world, get in your head... Where does Esther fit in this paradigm? So one, here's what we know about Esther. One, we know that she's a slave. She's all the way at the very bottom. But then we also know that Esther, she was a woman. So she was at the bottom of Persia's gender hierarchy. But then we also know that she was an orphan. So Esther would have, even above those things, she would have felt like she was at the bottom of the family scale. So listen, if anybody in the world felt like there was a gap between who I need to be, who I need to be, and who I am, it was Esther. But what does God do? Who is the person that among all of the kingdom, when God wants to save his people, who does he choose to save his people? Do you know what he does? He goes all, <clears throat> all the way down to the bottom and scrapes the very bottom of the barrel. And he goes, you, I'm going to choose you to make a difference for the fame of my name in this kingdom. And listen, he has always done that. Now listen, do you know why that is? Why is it that throughout all of the Bible, God always chooses the lowliest of the low anytime he makes, wants to make a difference? Do you know why? Here's my language I'm using today. Because he's the God of the gaps. That's what he is. He's the God of the gaps. Now here's why I'm getting this language. Do you guys remember Rocky 1? Come on, somebody. It's a Rocky 1. That was a great movie right there, Rocky 1. You remember in Rocky 1... You had Rocky, and he was talking to Polly, and there's this one interchange where Polly goes, hey, man, why you got to marry my sister? What's the attraction? And Rocky says, you remember what he says? He says, I don't know, gaps, I guess. And Polly says, gaps. What do you mean, gaps? And Rocky says, you know, gaps. I got gaps. She got gaps. Together, 
we fill gaps. And here's what you got. All throughout the Bible, what God does, every time we see a gap between our weaknesses and our callings, you know what God always does? He is always the God of those gaps. He always finds a way to choose what is low so that he can show himself strong on behalf of the weak. That's what he's always doing. Uh, one of my favorite old preachers is a guy named Adrian Rogers. He's gone to be with the Lord years ago. Uh, he was a, a, a preacher in Memphis, and uh, I grew up listening to some of his sermons. It, there was one sermon I heard. It, it, it's actually pretty cruel to do this, so I thought about doing it, but I don't hate you, so I'm not going to do it. Uh, Adrian Rogers is one sermon I was listening to. He, uh, he asked, he said, he said, hey, I'm going to ask some people in the room to stand up. And he started naming people. He said, uh, he said, if you were the valedictorian of your high school class, stand up. And he's in a room of a couple thousand people. I'm sure a lot of people stood up. He said, if you were the valedictorian of your college class, could you stand up? More people stand up. Then he says, if you played college athletics, would you go ahead and stand? More people stand up. He says, man, if you were the captain of one of your sports teams in high school, would you go ahead and stand up? More people stand up. Then he says, if you received a superlative in your high school class, so most likely to or best, you know, whatever, you guys stand up. More and more, and more people. So, and then the last thing he said on this little audio recording I listened to, he said, if you were a homecoming king or a homecoming queen, go ahead and stand up. Now, I want you to picture this. At this point, there's probably six or 700 people in the room standing up. And in front of everybody, as God is my witness, he looked at those people and he said, now for you guys standing up, I have good news and I have bad news. Good news, we're all very proud of your accomplishments. That's what he said. And then he said, bad news, the people that God is most likely to use are sitting down in the seats right next to you. And when you go read your Bible, what you're going to notice is that that is always true. God is always, it's almost like he's got his eyes roaming to and fro for what is weak in the world. So that he can use what is weak in the world to shame what is strong. And what is foolish in the world to shame what is wise. Why? Because he's the God of the gaps. That's why. He always wants to. Think about this with me. Just get your pantheon of Bible quote unquote heroes together in your head. Think about what they all would have said. You know, Josiah becomes a king when he's 12. He would have said, man, I'm I'm too young. God, you can't use me. I'm too young. Abraham, he's called to birth. Who would eventually become the savior of the world when he's 100. He would have said, oh God. I can't do it. You know, I'm too old. Moses was called to do what I do on a much larger scale, be the mouthpiece of God for a group of people. And he said, God, I can't do it. I've got a speech impediment. I stutter. Rahab, who was a prostitute, was used by God. She would have said, oh, my past and my present, they're way too messy. Hosea, who married a prostitute, he would have said, oh, my marriage is too bad. God, you could never use me. Isaiah, who literally in his entire ministry, nobody ever responds to his preaching. He would have said, you can't use me. I'm a ministry failure. David, he would have said, I had an affair. Eli would have said, my kids are in rebellion. Paul would have said, man, I I just keep getting stoned. By the way, that means rocks. I'm talking about rocks right there. Some of you guys are like, that's a ministry I can fulfill right there. He would just keep, and think about this even, even, go one further with me. Who, when God was choosing the person, creating, sending his son, to be the savior of the world, uh, how did he send him to come? Do you remember this? What, what do we know about Jesus? Was Jesus like front of a magazine GQ looks? No, no, no. The book of Isaiah says he had no beauty or majesty uh, in form of appearance that we should uh, esteem him. Uh, did Jesus come from a wealthy family? Did he have lots of opportunities? No, actually what we know is that when Jesus' family offered him at the altar, they had to give the gift that was prescribed 
for impoverished people. He came from absolutely no opportunity, no money at all. Uh, what about Jesus' pedigree? Did he come from a really good area? Uh, do you guys remember that one time in the gospel, somebody said, oh, uh, savior of the world, you say. Where is he from? Somebody said, Nazareth. And their response was, Nazareth? Can anything good come from Nazareth? That would be like if you went to work tomorrow and somebody said, hey, man, did you hear? The savior of the world's been born. He said, oh, where are they from? And they go, oh, Hohenwald. That's what that would have been like, Hohenwald. It, Jesus said there was absolutely nothing about him, an enormous gap. Think about this. Do you know what the greatest gap in the history of the universe has ever been? A lot of you guys are feeling the gap in your life. You know the gap that you will never experience? The greatest gap in the history of the world was this gap, the gap between the redeemer and savior of the entire world and a dead corpse in a grave for three days. And God showed himself strong on behalf of him who is weak. Why? Because he is the God of the gaps. And some of you right here, you're here right now. And you've always been too scared to be used by God or put yourself in a position to be used by God. And you say things like this. You say, man, I'm, I'm too young. Or I'm too old. Or my marriage is too messed up. Or I've gotten a divorce. Or my kids turned out all wrong. Or man, I'm just not smart enough. I can't do it. And listen, you know what God says in the face of all those things? He says, yeah, you're, you're exactly right. But I have chosen what is weak in the world to shame what is strong. And I have chosen what is foolish in the world to shame what is wise. My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, you will boast all the more gladly in your weaknesses. For when you are weak, then I am strong. You see, the person that God chooses is always the one at the bottom. And that's always the one that makes a difference for the fame of his name. So listen, this is a very, it almost seems childish to say this. But I just want to say it very bluntly. He can use you. Like, God can use you. Your excuse is his reason, actually. Okay? So that's one. The person God uses. Now, here's what you need to know. And I'm going to speak some, from some very personal experience. I'm going to lift it out of the text. But I felt this, okay? Whenever you step forward to be used by God, you are going to meet some very strong resistance. Okay? What's fascinating about this resistance is that it does not, the primary resistance is not external, it's internal. Now, let me give you a warning. What I'm about to say is not the type of thing that when preachers say it, people get all excited and shout amen and like, yes, I'm going to claim that is true. It's not a sexy thing to preach. It's a really needed thing to preach. And if you don't get this, then you'll never be able to plow through a hard time, okay? So track with me. Look at what happens in this passage whenever Esther is faced with this divine moment, okay? Look at verses 13 and 14. So it, here's what she says. She says, so actually, actually, don't look at verse 13 and 14. Just look at verse 11. So Esther, whenever she's in this moment, her deal is, here's what she says. All the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that if any man or woman goes to the king inside the inner court without being called, there is but one law to be put to death, except the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter so that he may live. But as for me, I have not been called to come into the king these 30 days. Now, what, let me just ask you, what is the primary emotion that Esther is feeling when she speaks verse 11? Do you know what it is? Or can you say it? What is it? It's, it's fear. She's feeling fear. Now, you need to know this, and when I say it, you're not going to believe it, but let me explain it. Whenever you step forward to be used by God to make a difference in this world, what you are going to feel is fear. But listen, it's not your inability or your weakness that is holding you back from making a difference. It's your fear. That's what's holding you back. Now, here's what I mean by this. Have you guys ever gone to a circus 
And it's the best example I could think of. You're at a circus. You're looking out at a big field. You'll see this on movies or documentaries sometimes. There's an enormous elephant in the middle of the field. And you'll look around. You go, wait, it's not in a cage. How, you know, what if it just runs off? And then you look down at one of its feet and you notice, man, all there is is this one stake in the ground and a tiny little rope that's holding back this enormous adult elephant. How does that work? Well, let me explain it. Here's how that works. Whenever a baby elephant is born in a circus, what the elephant trainer does is literally from the first day of the elephant's life, it takes a stake and it ties the stake to the elephant's leg and pounds it into the ground. And when an elephant is one or two weeks old, that stake is stronger than the elephant so it can't run off. So when it's one, two, three weeks old, it keeps trying to run off, but it learns over time that stake is stronger than I am. And it keeps learning that when it's a month old and three months old and six months old. But here's what's fascinating. Eventually, it gets so ingrained into that elephant's head, that stake is stronger than me, that as it grows older, there comes a moment where that adult elephant could, as easy as a toothpick, pull that thing out of the ground and just run away. But it learned when it was young, that stake is stronger than me, So it never tries to run away, and it never gets any freedom. So here's here's a point. There comes a point in the elephant's life where it's no longer the stake that's holding the elephant back anymore. It's the elephant's belief that is holding the elephant back at that point. And listen, here's what you need to know about you if you are a Christian. Listen, the spirit of the living God has been put inside of you for ministry and mission. The same power that raised Christ Jesus from the dead dwells in you. You have not been given a spirit of timidity and of fear, but a spirit of power and of love and of a sound mind. And listen, if you are a person who is the spirit of God dwells in you, it is no longer your weakness or your inability that is holding you back from being used by God. Do you know what it is? It's your belief of your fear that's holding you back. That's all that it is. Now listen. What this book does is it show, there's a pattern in the entire scriptures. I could lift it out. But this book, it's, it's a microcosm. It's an example. It's a case study. It shows us two things about how Christians, with the Spirit of God dwelling in us, move past our fears to be used by God. And if you don't get these things, then you will spend your entire life tied to a stake of fear. That's what will happen to you for the rest of your entire life. So two quick things. What Esther does, it shows us it removes a negative and it provides a positive. Does both of those things. This is really important, okay? I'm going to teach for a second. Let me teach. So it removes a negative, provides a positive. Now, look down at verses 13 and 14, okay? 13 and 14. Actually, don't do it. I'm, 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 my sermon knows. I, I, don't do that yet, okay? Here's where I'm going with this. Uh, have you guys ever hit, been in a, uh, a conversation where somebody says something to you, and then when they're done... What it's, it's what they didn't say that spoke really loud to you. Here's, here's my best example I could think of. I'm sure there's a better one. Uh, years ago, when Jan and I were like flat, utterly broke, we were coming up on this anniversary, and I was like, babe, we are breaking the daggum bank this anniversary. I had saved up some Josh Howerton, Dave Ramsey fun money, right? And I was all ready for us to spend like a hundred dollars on one meal. We had never done that before. So I was like, we're going to spend a hundred dollars on one meal. 
And so we went out to the steakhouse in Nashville. I'm not going to name it because I'm going to dog it here in a second. And uh, we went out and we did. We did the works. Uh, we, we got, you know, Jana got some tea before the meal. We got an appetizer uh, before the meal. And then we ordered whatever we wanted. There was no, you know, price fix, Howerton price fixing uh, going on. We just ordered whatever we wanted. And then we were done. Listen, we didn't order one dessert. We ordered two desserts. That's right. Amen. Right there. We ordered two desserts. And then when we were done with the dessert, we got coffee with the desserts. They, this uh, steakhouse had a really incredible salad uh, option, which is whatever. That's not my thing. Janet did that thing. And uh, when we were done, you know, I was so proud of this meal that we had just spent $100. We had never done that before. We just spent $100 on one meal. We got back in the car, and, uh, and I asked Janet. I could tell, you know, I was like, oh, man, I bet she was really impressed with that meal. And I got back in the car, and I was like, hey, babe. So what'd you think of the meal? And, uh, you know, Jana's a gentle Jana, meek and mild, sweet spirit. And a uh, long pause, and, and she thought for a long time, and she said, uh, you know, the tea was good. And that's all she said. The tea was good. And I freaked out. I was like, babe, we just spent $100 on a meal. We got 50-cent tea at home, right? It's like, that's, now listen, it wasn't what she said that got me. It's what she didn't say. She mentioned the 50-cent tea, not the $100 steak. You got that? Now, listen, here's what Bible scholars have always noticed about the book of Esther. You may have never noticed this before. If you read all 10 chapters of Esther, there is a glaring, obvious omission from the book of Esther. There is one thing that the book of Esther never says that when you finish, you realize the author intentionally never said that. Does anybody know what it is? What is the one thing the book of Esther never says? It never says God. In 10 chapters of the book of Esther, God's name is never mentioned. He is never even implied. Not one time. And Bible scholars have always noted that's on purpose. Now, let me ask you this question. Why? Why 10 chapters of Esther, the obvious controlling sovereignty of God, and not one mention of God, do you know why? <clears throat> it's teaching us about the nature of true faith. Most of us have no idea what true faith is. Okay, so let me make this really clear. Here's what faith is not the feeling that you get when you can see God working, it is the commitment to follow Him when you can't. That's what faith is. Now, that's not, like I said, this is, the spot. this is not the sexy part of the sermon. That's not where people shout amen. That is not what we want to hear. But that is what the Bible teaches. Faith is not the feeling that you get when you see God working. It is the commitment to follow him when you can't. If you don't have that, you will never be able to move through your fear and be used by God. Let me say it to you another way, okay? The book of Esther is teaching the silence of God does not equal the absence of God. It's teaching his invisibility does not mean that he is uninvolved. Let me speak to somebody really quick, okay? Let me get really personal. Some of you, this Mother's Day is so hard because for 5 or 10 or 20 years, you've been wrestling with infertility or reproductive issues. And you've been praying and praying and praying and praying. And there is no voice from heaven. The silence of God does not equal the absence of God. Some of you are here, and uh, Mother's Day is really hard because uh, you've got a kid who is just running as far from God as fast as they can. And you are working and working and working and loving and loving and loving and teaching and teaching and teaching, and you can't see anything happen. Well, listen, his invisibility 
does not mean that he is uninvolved. And when you step forward into any form of ministry to be used by God to make a difference in any way, listen, I speak from real personal experience right here. You are going to have seasons where you are plowing a field and you are not harvesting anything. And in that moment, you have to understand the silence of God does not equal the absence of God. His invisibility does not mean that he is uninvolved. Faith is not a feeling that I get when I see that God is working. It is the commitment to follow him even when I can't see that he's working. See, that is what Esther's teaching us. Not sexy, but we need it. Okay, and I'll stop saying sexy. I promise I'm done. So one, it removes a negative. Now listen, it also provides a positive. Let me land the plane. You know what some of you guys need? Here's what you need. You know what you need? You need a Mordecai moment. Some of you right now, you're stuck. And what you need to get unstuck is you need a Mordecai moment, okay? Here's what I mean by this. Look down at verse 13 and 14. So Esther, she's got this fear. And if we wanted to summarize Esther's fear, her fear was, her fear was this. But if I act, then this might happen. She was calculating the risk of what may happen if she acted in faith. But if I act, then this may happen. That was her fear. Mordecai comes in, and what he does is he flips the script on Esther's fear. Let me show you what I mean right here. Look down at 13 and 14. Then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, Do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape more than all the other Jews. For Now listen to what he does. So she's saying, but if I speak, then this may happen. But look at what Mordecai does in verse 14. But yeah, but if you keep silent at this time... Relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Do you know what Mordecai just did to her? Mordecai, here's what I mean. Uh, Fix this in your head. I'm going to make you shout something out loud really quick. I know you hate it when I do this. I'm doing it anyway. Fix in your head. What is the greatest movie ever made? Get it in your head. Greatest movie ever made. All right. Now, on the count of three, you got to shout it out loud just to boost my self-esteem. Just do it. Okay. One, two, three, Braveheart. Okay. Now, listen, if you said anything other than Braveheart, you are objectively wrong. That's how that works. Okay. That's the correct answer. That's an objective fact. Do you guys remember the first time you saw that movie? There is one moment in that movie that made you want to like rip open your TV screen and put like blue face paint on and hop on a horse. You guys remember this? There's the one moment you got two. Everybody knows what I'm talking about. You got 2000 Scottish warriors facing 10,000 English war horses. And William Wallace stands up and he says, you know, he says, uh, what will you do with that freedom? Will you fight? And that one really annoying guy in the front row says, you know, he's a scoffer. He says, fight. Are you kidding me? Says, no, we're not going to fight 2000 against 10. No, we're going to run and we're going to live. And then what William Wallace does is he mortifies that guy is what he does. Remember what he says? <clears throat> I think I can quote it from memory. Actually, <laughs> he says, he says, I, you know, fight and you may die, run and you'll live at least for a while. But then he says, but someday, many days from now, dying on your bed, would you be willing to trade all the days from this day to that, to come back here as young men for one chance, I got it all wrong right now, for one chance, just one chance to say to our enemies that they may take our lives, but they may never take and finish it for me, our freedom, right? And every, you just want to get up and run through the TV screen, right? And do you know what he did? What he did was he was saying to this guy, listen, you are only calculating the risk of fighting. You are not calculating the risk of not fighting. 
And that is what most people spend their entire lives doing. And that is why most people waste their lives and are never used by God. They spend their entire lives only calculating the risk of acting in faith. They never pause to calculate the risk of not acting in faith. And Mordecai says to Esther, listen, here's the greatest risk you're facing right now. You passing on your divine moment. And you spending your entire life watching God use someone else. And knowing that it could have been you. That's the real risk you're facing right now. Not some King Xerxes. That's not your real risk. And listen, what I want to say to you guys right now is some of you, you are in that exact same moment right now. You've spent your entire life calculating the risk of acting. And you've never come along and calculated the risk of not acting. So let me just do this really quick. Some of you, you're in a spot right now where it's like, man, if I, you got an issue in your life, and it's like maybe an addiction issue, and you're like, man, if I get honest about, everybody look at me, if I get honest about what's going on in my life right now, then man, this might happen. If I get honest about the things that are going on secretly in my life, this might happen. And that's your fear. Well, listen, let me counteract that. Yeah, everything in your head may happen, but what about this? What may happen if you never get honest with somebody? Issue may grow and grow and grow and take over your family and take over your life and steal everything that you hold dear. Uh, some of you are in a spot right now where it's like, man, you've got a friend who doesn't know the Lord. And you have this thing in your head like, man, what if I get into a friendship with this person that doesn't know God and I say the wrong thing or I do the wrong thing and you're calculating that risk? Well, man, what about this risk? What about the risk for that person if they never develop a relationship with somebody who does know God? There's a risk there too, isn't it? A risk that, that person will spend their entire life separated from Christ and eternity without him. Some of you might be in a spot right now where you are, con- listen, I did, I'm doing this on purpose. I want to push somebody over the edge. You are in a spot right now where you, you are considering adopting. And right now you've got all of these fears in your head. Man, what if we adopt again? What, how will our other two kids take it? Or man, what if the adoption goes sideways and it doesn't go very well? And those are all your risks. And I go, yeah, okay, I understand that risk. But what about the risk of no one ever adopting that child? Have you ever considered that risk? I'll take this a step further for us as a church family right now. You know, what Mordecai says here, he says, man, God is a saving God. He is going to act whether you step forward or not. The only question is, will he use you or will he have to use somebody else? Listen, Bridge family, here's what I know. God is a saving God. He is going to renew his works as in the days of old in Nashville, Tennessee. The only question that we have is will we let him use us or will we have to live our entire lives watching him use some other group of people? And the answer to that is absolutely no. And when you have that, listen, this is a point of no return. When you have a Mordecai moment and you begin calculating the risk of not acting, that will push you through to be used by God, okay? So what I want to do right now is I want to pray that that would happen like here, right now, okay? So if you could, would you bow your head and close your eyes? And I want to pray for the Spirit to do a work in our body right now. And Holy Spirit, I call on you from my own weakness and my own brokenness. And I ask that right now, even through the prayer of a weak and broken man, that you would come and that you would do the work that I cannot do. And so, Holy Spirit, would you please penetrate the hearts of people who are here and would you show them what that thing, those things are, that they are afraid to do, but they are uncomfortable having not yet done. Uh, Father, would you please let us move forward in a spirit of boldness and not a spirit of fear. Uh, The same spirit that your son 
had as he moved forward with boldness uh, for the salvation of the world. Um, God, would you please move among us to use what is weak in the world to shame what is strong and foolish in the world to shame what is wise, that your son might be glorified in our lives. And so God, uh, propel us forward. Um, We ask you to use us as living sacrifices, and we pray it in the name of Jesus, that he might be lifted up and made famous here and among all the nations. In his name we pray, amen. And do a work right now that I can't do. And Father, I pray, uh, I pray your word over my people. And uh, your word says that we have not been given a spirit of fear, but a spirit of love and power and sober-mindedness. And so, Father, would you please awaken within the hearts of our church the fact that the same power that raised Christ Jesus from the dead has been planted in us. And that we are here to do good works that you prepared in advance for us to do. And so, Father, would you propel us forward, us weak and broken people. And would you help us see that we don't need to be awesome. We just need to have an awesome Savior. Uh, Father, would you show yourself strong on behalf of we who are weak. uh, So that we can just feel free to be weak in your presence to be used by you. And Father, I pray for people who even as I speak right now and as I pray, there is that one thing that they know that they are afraid to do, but they are uncomfortable having not yet done. And I pray that your spirit now would prompt them step by step to walk forward uh, in the way that you have called them. And so God, uh, use us. We are living sacrifices for you. Our lives are yours. We pray that in the name of Christ. Amen.